This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. Welcome, everyone, to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is Bruce Feldman from Fox Sports and The Athletic. In the last two weeks, two Power 5 coaches have been fired. That makes three on the season, so the carousel is about to get cranking. Bruce covers that part of college football as well as anyone. We'll discuss where Florida State and Arkansas might be looking for a new coach, what's next at USC, and what other jobs might come open. Plus, who are the coordinators and assistants who could be in line for a promotion, and what coaches could be candidates for NFL jobs. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, at Apple Podcasts, just about anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe. If so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is my good friend from Fox and The Athletic, Bruce Feldman. Thank you, Bruce, for joining us today. And I know you had to get up early because you have a couple little kids out west. Um, but nonetheless, we I appreciate you uh, doing something and moving around this early in the morning out on the West Coast. Oh, always a pleasure to talk football with you, Ralph, as well as technology and our challenges handling both. Yeah, just, you know, to to uh, remove the fourth wall there, um, I was having a little issue getting back onto Skype. I just, I, there are way too many passwords. I just was having a really hard time figuring out which one would unlock uh, the the key, which one would be the key that unlocks Skype today. So that, that put us a little behind schedule, but, you know, Bruce is patient and, and we move on. So we are are going to spend four weeks talking about whether Alabama should make the playoff. So we're not going to do that today. We've got more than enough time to handle that debate. We are taping this before the playoff rankings come out tonight. uh, It is Tuesday morning. They come out Tuesday night. So we really won't get much into that. If you want that debate, you can find it somewhere else. And again, we will have it here for the next few weeks. Um, But at this point, the coaching carousel is really getting cranked up. We had the last two weeks, we've had two firings. Florida State got rid of Willie Taggart. Arkansas got rid of Chad Morris. Both of those coaches gone after less than two years, which um, seems maybe we are now setting a new normal uh, in college football. That was a rarity, and now it's happened twice in the last couple of weeks. USC seems to be moving towards an inevitable change. And then there are some other spots out there that might be interesting as well. Let's start with the freshest part, and that is Arkansas. Let's dive into what Arkansas could do, should do, maybe wants to do, because with all of these coaching situations, the most interesting part of them is not just who ends up there, but what kind of dominoes they domino effect it might trigger. And Arkansas has the potential to trigger some dominoes, maybe. 
Yeah, so to me, this one's really a tricky one to figure out because of the last two hires they made, especially. Now, look, I mean, people look and go, Arkansas is god-awful now, and they are. But it, at the beginning of this decade, Bobby Vitrino had, had back-to-back double-digit win seasons, and they were rolling, and then all of a sudden he got on the motorcycle, and all it's all gone to heck, right? So what was Chad Morris, I didn't think it was a terrible hire when they made it, but he was not really that proven as a head coach. He had three years— he, he elevated SMU. They had been dismal and kind of fallen off the, the grid under June Jones at the end. And, you know, he had a sub-500 record. He was 8-16 and 16 in the AAC. They, they thought, you know, Texas ties, good, successful Texas high school coach, did well as an offensive coordinator at Clemson. It didn't work. And then you go before him, you had Brett Bielema. He was a proven winner, 40-13 uh, and 13 in his last four seasons in the Big Ten, Real identity, real personality, real presence. He could not get the, to- the corner turn. So what do you do now? I mean, I think a lot of times people look and say, okay, Mike Norvell from Memphis has done really well at Memphis. He went to college in Arkansas. He makes a lot of sense. He does, and he di- he's definitely done more to prove himself than Chad Morris had done previously. But is that, that going to give them the confidence? Yeah, this is definitely the guy who's going to be able to handle it in the SEC West. Maybe. I think the one that is probably the most intriguing here, and I think it kind of goes into the direction you were you were kind of going with your question, is Gus Malzahn. Deep ties in the state of Arkansas. He has coached a long time in the SEC West, and he's been on the hot seat before. And when you're on the hot seat at Auburn, it's a little different than when you're on the hot seat almost any place else. Because even if you get off it, and he had that year in 2017, huge wins against Georgia and Alabama— they reward him with a seven-year, $49 million deal. Could have probably gone back to Arkansas at that point, decided I'm going to go all in at, at, at Auburn. The, the part that's hard is once you've been on that hot seat at a place like that where there's sky-high expectations, crazy big-money boosters, and Nick Saban's at the arch rival, that's a recipe for trouble. And – you know, right now, it's not like they've had a bad year. They're in the top 15, but they still got to play Georgia and Alabama. Um, and so they could be eight and four. And I think the reality for him is, does he look at, at this Arkansas job now and think, you know what? I can go restart my clock, which matters in coaching, and, and go there, go home, uh, rather than, you know what? Next year, I'm definitely going to be in the hot seat if I don't win these two, two huge heavyweight games. And the, the economics of this is going to be interesting to see if it goes that route, because if Auburn wants to fire him, they'd owe him about $27 million. If Gus leaves, he'd owe them about $7 million. So do they not meet in the middle where it'd be, you know, whatever that math is, $20 million or $18 million. But would Auburn agree to, OK, you give us 3 or $4 million and and we'll find somebody else? I mean, that would... I think that would be incumbent upon Auburn feeling like there's somebody else we really feel pretty good about. Yeah, I think let's go back to when they hired Chad Morris. They had just hired the athletic director. So the athletic director, Hunter Juracek, did not really do that search. I think he was there to make the announcement, but they had fired Bielema and Jeff Long around the same time. I think Long first and then Bielema. So that you have an AD who didn't necessarily handle that search. So in in some ways I can understand Arkansas saying, listen, we're just going to cut bait on Morris. We're going to do a real search with our AD. But some of the realities are still 
there. And, and one of the realities that I, I, you know, from what I've heard that led Gus, and this is not necessarily breaking news, to, to decide, no, I don't want to go back to Arkansas, is the simple fact that it's harder to win at Arkansas. Now, you can say it's really hard to win at Auburn because Alabama is your rival and you play Georgia every year. But Gus has won those games occasionally, you know? I mean, you can be in, he has gone to a national championship game. He has won that division a couple of times. You can compete at that level against Auburn. It's really hard because you got to beat Saban and he's in your backyard and you're going to get compared to that. But Arkansas, I don't know if if Arkansas can even compete against Alabama anymore. And the reality for Arkansas is it's gotten worse as far as all the churn. So the job is now going to be even harder, I think, to turn around. But there's also the question of if Arkansas is really running well, does it beat Alabama anyway? It's got the toughest recruiting area in the SEC West because it doesn't have a naturally a natural great recruiting base. There's not a ton of players that kind of come out of Arkansas. You have to reach into Louisiana, which is tough when LSU's got it going on and they got it going on. And you got to reach into Texas. And now... There's a Texas school in the SEC in Texas A&M. So all those things sort of pile up to, I guess Gus could sort of decide it's a quality of life move. Get me the hell out of Auburn's because that's that's become really stressful in ways that I can't control. But I don't know if you're, you know, for a coach, they all want to win national championships and SEC championships and things like that. And I think the simple assessment could come down to, can I win there? It's just really going to be really, really hard to win at Arkansas. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is a valid point. And look, all the stuff you said, I think is true. Pile on to the part, okay, can I beat Alabama? Now look what's going on at LSU. LSU just just overtook Alabama in the SEC West. LSU's recruited well. LSU's about to recruit even better now that they have a lot of momentum and they they have become the it school, thanks to Joe Burrow, Joe Brady, and the way, the vibe there. That just made the SEC West probably that much harder because it's not like Nick Saban is going to leave tomorrow. So you got two super heavyweights now, really. I don't think Alabama is going to fall apart. So, (laughs) and they're both in that, in that footprint as well. Now, I mean, LSU has had a lot of success already in Texas that gives them more reach into that area. So I don't know. It's, it's a tough one because, Unless, you know, look, we think Jimbo Fisher is going to get it going at Texas A&M. They're right in that area. They're right in that footprint now. They're in that. That, that is their backyard. So it's, again, I, I think I go back to, you know, if Gus is looking at it going, you know, have I done as much as I can do at Auburn, realistically? And he's been there a long time. And I don't, I don't know if he, you know, what his answer to that would be. I guess we're going to find out, though. Yeah, it, there, there comes a point when maybe you say, okay, I, I'm I'm done with these problems. Uh, I'm going to go try different problems. In other words, you know, maybe I can go to Arkansas. I have uh, credibility there. It's my home state. I have maybe some support there that I don't have at Auburn, and I can have deal with lesser expectations. In other words, if I go. Eight and four at Arkansas, considering the state of the program over the last you know decade or so, I will be hailed as a hero. You know, sometimes it's hard for coaches to sort of you know dial back their own expectations that way. To me, I, I think 
this is the spot for Mike Norvell to finally make the jump. My sense was he was in the mix last time, but maybe simply decided that, hey, I got some really good stuff going on at Memphis, and and why leave that team behind? Plus, they're going to pay me really well. But that's another element that has to be factored in, too. A lot of times... You know, these coaches that have a little experience and some a good resume at a, at an AAC school or maybe even a high level Mountain West school, you know, they're getting paid pretty well in the AAC. So if you're Mike Norvell, it's probably time to get rolling. It's probably time to make the next step. And, and Arkansas could be that next step. But do you look at your Memphis team, think, I probably have one more really good year left in me, and I'm not sure about that because I haven't done a deep dive on the Memphis roster, and I know Brady White moves on next year, so you're going to have a new quarterback. But if you no, think, I think, I think Brady has three years three, when he went oh, does there, he? he had three years of eligibility. Oh, so, so I was going to say, he's so still, unless he wants to leave, Brady White's going to get like 11 degrees <laughs> out, of, out of college. So if he's yes, another yeah, year so if you're if you're Norvell, you could think, hey, if I come back next year, maybe Mississippi State's open, maybe Ole Miss is open, maybe there's some stuff going on in the SEC. Who knows? Well, let me ask. Or you maybe this, I Ralph, get Auburn. I, I, you know, <laughs> like here's the here's the transition, and look, maybe he could get Auburn this year if right. he leaves. Also. You know, one of the things I, I think we're going to talk about in a second, maybe I'm, I'm playing producer here, but Florida State is open. Yeah, let's go right to it, that then. You know, so I think he's a viable candidate for Florida State. And I think Mark Stoops is certainly a viable candidate. Mark, not Bob. I think Mark Stoops is a viable <laughs> candidate for Florida State. I think there's a little bit of crossover between that the Arkansas job and the Florida State job for candidates in that. I think Norvell is a real candidate for both. I think Mike Leach is kind of a wild card candidate for both. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, I can't, boy, I cannot imagine Mike Leach at Florida State. Uh, and listen, you know him better than any of us, but everybody knows him pretty well because, yeah. you know. Because, I think we all know, I think we all know him well enough. Let's yeah, say that. <laughs> yes, but that seems like a very odd, that would seem like, now I think Gus at, if I was Florida State, that's the guy I might go after. Like I'll, I'll bring the exact same blueprint or game plan Arkansas is going to use. Why stay there and just deal with being on the hot seat every year just because when, when you go eight and four with good teams, come here and you can compete for national championships. All you have to do is beat Clemson. Not easy, but the the material is here to do that. Yeah, I guess there's something. I feel like Gus is more a little further to the left side of the country, and I'm not talking politically, obviously, at all, but <laughs> than he is to, to, to Florida and some of their – I know he's gotten players out of Florida. I mean, the fastest guy in college football, Anthony Schwartz, he got out of South Florida to go there. He's got, you know, our, Auburn has done well in the state of Florida for a long time. But I feel like, and again, I could be wrong. I, I don't see him as much of a fit in Tallahassee. But look, Tallahassee and, and Auburn aren't that different. The part where I think, and maybe this is talking to maybe the wrong people about this, but uh, some of the leadership, and I put this in quotes because at Florida State, it's kind of shaky at this point. Uh you know, from what I've heard, are like kind of more like-minded to Leach. That I think some of the stuff that he might he might say might not might not bother them as much as it might bother some other people who think, you know, what you can't really say stuff like that or mm-hmm. kind of kind of comport yourself in that manner. And maybe that's a bad read. What I've got from some of the people I've talked to down there, but that was that was what I I had heard a week or so ago. Now look. I don't think Leach is doing himself any favor. Certainly, you know, losing to 
losing to to Cal and and having a sub 500 record isn't great, but we can't, we know what he is. I mean, at this point, I mean, it, an 11 win season last year. I mean, if they go six and six, five and seven, I'm not sure that people change their mind about what kind of coach he is. I think the part that's that's not doing himself any favors is just the comments when they lose. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the stuff that it's one thing for a coach to go, all right, we didn't do a good job of coaching. We're not the message that's on us. We sucked as coaches. I think it gets into another another realm when all of a sudden you start you're saying you're doing a bad coaching job, but then it goes back to the players are soft, the players are dumb, or whatever those comments may be, or our leaders are frauds. It's like it speaks to more of a character assessment than the job somebody did. And that's the part, and look, and full disclosure, I, people know this by now probably with me, I wrote a book with Mike Leach, it wasn't about him. But I think that's the part, if we're being totally honest, I think some some people, and I just don't know how many of the decision makers feel this, are going to go, eh, I don't, I know he wins. I know he's a successful coach. I know he will create some buzz here. I'm not, how comfortable are certain people who are the bosses going to be with that, especially on a bigger stage? And certainly Florida State is a much bigger stage and Arkansas is a bigger stage. Okay. So with Florida State, I would, the question for me would be, can Mike Leach recruit at the level that you need to do at Florida State? Now, the players are right there, and there's a lot of them that are going to go to Florida State no matter who is coaching Florida State, right? There, there You will get four- and five-star players at Florida State regardless of the coach. So maybe that, to a certain degree, fixes itself. But there is also an element of he has fit well in places where they were looking for some type of advantage where they needed to be schemed up they needed to be coached up they were the behind the eight ball school that needed to find ways to close the gap between the schools with the fours and the five stars that was texas tech and that was and that is washington state and i just wonder if that type of coach then goes into a position where no 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 now you have the best players you need to have you need to have the best players that's what's available to you those are the players that need to create your roster and you just wonder how that plays out in recruiting then you take into some of the stuff he says and the way he acts and again you wonder how that plays when recruiting against Dabo and against Dan Mullen and against the rest of the SEC and the big powers uh, that swoop into that area to grab players it becomes a very different recruiting environment so forget Leach's personality, though, I guess there's an element of his personality that, that weighs into this conversation. But I do wonder if the his blueprint, his fit, what he does best works at a place where you're supposed to have the best players. Now, I think Arkansas needs that at this point. Arkansas is the disadvantaged school in the SEC West for all the things we talked about before as far as recruiting. It's going to need to figure out a way to zig while everybody else is zagging or zag while everybody else is zigging. And that's why I think Leach might be a better fit there than at a place like Florida State. Yeah, I think you made a, you made a really compelling point to that. The other thing, just to probably top off what you said about the recruiting part, is what I would be curious about is – Leach almost always, and I'm not saying he hasn't won any recruiting battles or guys on his staff haven't won recruiting battles, but how, when you get four and five star guys, and I'm not saying they're all like this, but there's a bunch who are like this. It's mm-hmm. probably more percentage I, than it was. I know where you're ago. going with this. Yeah, You get some entitlement. <laughs> right. Mike Leach does not do well with that or hasn't in the past. And so 
I'd be curious how that would play out and how he would how he would deal with it. It would be a it would be a fascinating experiment to see. Um, I'd be very interested to see how that part would go because um, you you just think I remember early on Eddie, when he got to Washington State, the best player in the program and the most accomplished player in the program wasn't a big recruit, but it was a kid named Marquise Wilson. Yep, six three receiver, put up huge numbers for Paul Wolf, and by midseason. Uh, even before then, Leach and his staff were already really down on the kid. And that kid did not last. Now, he didn't end up doing much in the NFL. I know he got drafted by the Bears. I don't know if he even, you know, if he, if he stuck or not. But I don't, you know, I don't think he had the career that you would have thought a guy like got off to the start that he had. And so you start to wonder, how does this play? Now, again, Leach has had certainly some kids who were big, big time kids and they responded well. And there's a bunch of kids who've grown from it. But, um, yeah, I, I think you make a good point. I think Arkansas probably does seem like a more of a natural fit. Obviously, he lives in Key West, but he spent all that time in Lubbock, Texas. And I think he's probably got deeper ties in recruiting around the state of Texas. So, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I'm interested to see it. I mean, the Florida State search, I think, got off to such a wild start with all the crazy Bob Stoops rumors. And then right. Dion marshaled everybody he could, uh, you know, it seemingly at NFL Network to be like, hey, I'm a candidate. I'm interested. And that would have been an, a, an interesting experiment if they opted to go there. <laughs> you know, I, I occasionally do a Sirius XM show and we had, gosh, now I'm blanking out on which great Florida State player we had on. Um, Leroy Butler on. Okay. and he was touting Edgar Bennett who I believe is an NFL assistant now yeah. now again now I don't know if Edgar Bennett wants the job I, I, I don't think they're going to hire Edgar Bennett but I do wonder if maybe Florida State could use to tap into some folks like that again I have no idea if Edgar Bennett wants to be a, a college assistant hey, Ralph you know they have a great former player who's been a coach for a long time Right now is the interim head coach. Right, it is, it is. He it was is. a great that is the guy. player. Right, that is the he guy. He knows that place better than anybody. I'm not saying, you know, who knows? I mean, they had a nice one over BC. There's probably not enough time for him to convince people that, oh, yeah, maybe we should consider Odell. Yeah. You know, he, he bleeds garnet and gold. I mean, right. I don't know. That's not, not a bad thought. I mean, he's – and look, I think uh, Edgar Bennett was the OC under Mike McCarthy for a couple of years in Green Bay. I don't – I don't know, you know, how he's thought of. I know he's in the, you know, the school hall of fame. I remember being a terrific running back, but I, I don't know. I, I'd be surprised if that's the direction they would go. No, me too. But I just, I also have, a, have, I suspect that when this thing is done at Florida State, it could surprise us. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how or why, but I suspect that it could surprise us. Whereas Arkansas, I, I think there's a couple of pretty obvious pads, and my only you know concern, if I'm an Arkansas fan, is the program has been run into the ground so badly that does the next guy in two years we're two years out and the next guy is also losing, you know, I get, well, listen, as long, I guess if he can beat San Jose state, he'll have done a better job than Chad Morris. But are, is the program so far down that two years from now, that next guy is still digging out, trying to figure out what works best in that division. All right. Let's, yeah. You also, you also quickly run the risk of Brett, Brett Bielema wanted tight ends and big physical football. And then all of a sudden you, you, you got a complete shift now to what Chad Morris was recruiting to, and so now you're you gotten players who how do they fit in the program? You, you also worry about APR issues when you have so much turnover. That's a good point. Of as guys well. jumping in and out of the boat. So I mean that's 
whoever gets over this job is going to have to tie up a lot of loose ends that have probably been kind of coming apart for a little while now. Right, which is the reason why I think it would be super surprising to see a guy like Gus, but again, Gus has, you know, going home, or any other established coach with a pretty good job in the Power Five decide, oh yeah, Arkansas, that's the place for me, because it's just, it's been such a disaster lately. Okay, so now those could, again, those jobs could spark some dominoes. We're going to get to USC in a bit. I'm just wondering if, if you've got your eyes on any other spots that seem to be getting a little heated. Uh, one that came up to me, I had one source tell me, nah, he's good. Another say, uh, I'm not sure about that. And that's Will Muschamp because they're, he's looking at four and eight at this point, even though they beat Georgia, there's a good chance that that, that that's going to be four and eight and he's in year four. And I know they've had a ton of injuries and he's a really good dude by all accounts. But I, I just think four and eight, suddenly the conversation becomes a little stronger as what are we doing here? And, and should we move on? Yeah, there was two jobs in the SEC that I thought were kind of very vulnerable, and it was that one and Vandy. Um, yeah, Vandy seems I, like a foregone conclusion at this point. Yeah, and I, my gut was that Will Muschamp, that they were going to give him another year, and I don't know if it was all the goodwill that was brought by the win at Georgia, but um, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if they if they just ripped the Band-Aid off and said, hey, we're going in a different direction. It certainly does not help them that right now the gold standard in college football at this point is the is the arch rival um that's not a good thing for them and it doesn't you know because they have some talent it's just you're looking at it going what's why have they backslid so much and i think it's not it probably doesn't help will muschamp a lot that he's gotten two jobs that are pretty good jobs you know it wasn't like he was ever a proven head coach he went to florida i think everybody feels positively about him as a dude, but just as a head coach, it just, it just has not, I, I don't know, short of that Georgia game, which I, I don't know what, you, what else there is to really feel that positive about if you're them and the losses keep piling up and you're not in, look what the division you're in. You're in a really, really average power five division where there's Georgia, Florida's pretty good. And there's just a bunch of question marks around you. Right. Though it should also be noted, I think, that you're seeing maybe a little bit of reality play out to South Carolina, and we sort of lost the reality of South Carolina during Spurrier's heyday, right? Spurrier knocked out, I think it was three straight 11-win seasons, which was just unheard of at South Carolina. Even Lou Holtz, which who had pretty nice success at South Carolina, never came close to that. So I use this phrase a lot. You you are what you always what you have always been in college football. Most programs sort of find their level and and end up being what their history suggests. And maybe South Carolina is just sort of you know regressing back to the mean of its history. But I would think this with with Spurrier. One of the things when he was there, it helped him. Two things that I think are were different than they'd been in a while. One. Tennessee started to fall apart, and Tennessee would always recruit into South Carolina. And, yep, and, that helped a lot. And also, Dabo hadn't gotten it really cranked up at Clemson yet. Mm-hmm. So Clemson was kind of coming off of, of, of Terry Bowden or Tommy, Tommy Bowden not getting it going. And so I think that helped South Carolina. It's not to say Spurrier you know, has, didn't do a terrific job there, but I think those things changed. And that was, it was a ripe time for South Carolina to, to get really good. Now, Tennessee has still been a has been a largely a dud. And I just, um, I don't know why South Carolina isn't better than they are. There's plenty of players there 
And it's not like, you know, it's not like you look at it. I mean, North Carolina and some of those schools have got just, I don't know what it is, why, why they are not at least, you know, a seven and five, you know, eight or nine win team. I mean, they're just not getting it done right now. And again, the rest of the SEC East, Vandy, Kentucky had a really good year, but that was it. You know, Missouri is, is whatever. Tennessee, it's just, you're looking at it going, this is, this, they should be better than this. Here's the other thing that uh, that could play in Will Muschamp's favor. Now, I'm looking at the USA Today database. The, the buyout's $19 million as of December 1st. I believe it probably goes down, but I, I'm sure it doesn't go down $10 million on December yeah, right. 1st. It might go down to 14 I would think. I'm just sort of guessing, doing the math of what he makes a year, maybe 15 So that might be a good motivation to keep him around another year, too, $15 million for Will Muschamp. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll shift the conversation a little bit out of the South toward the Midwest, because there's an interesting possibility there that could, I think, again, create some interesting dominoes. This is the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, and I'm talking with the great Bruce Feldman from Fox and the Athletic, and we'll be back right after this. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Bruce Feldman joining me today to talk coaching carousel. So we talked a lot about what's going on down south. Um, up north, and again, this doesn't look like a, a, a year where there's going to be a ton of job openings, but we've said that before, and what ends up happening is a few dominoes fall, plus a few coaches uh, have terrible finishes to their season, and that, those things start, uh, and a few jobs end up opening up that we didn't expect. One of them in the Big Ten that, I don't know, I mean, the Mark D'Antonio sort of rumors and what exactly goes on there, they just had an awful loss to Illinois and are li- really looking at scraping by to get into a bowl game at this point. Now, I think they still have to play Rutgers, so that should help. And but, they have to play Maryland. So and they have to play fun. Maryland. So they should get to six. And if they lose to Michigan this week, and listen, you know, they always play their best against Michigan. It always seems like they play their best, so maybe we shouldn't write them off there. But it's not like Mark D'Antonio is going to be fired. Two reasons. A, he's, he's arguably one of the two greatest coaches in the history of the program. B, there's really no leadership there now to force out a guy like that. But do you think he looks at this, the, the lay of the land there and says, you know what? I've had enough. There's some off-the-field issues that are coming in, into play here, too. I'm just going to move on. You know, I don't know. I mean, I know him a little bit. I don't really know how he... Because everything you just said is valid. I mean, they are staring at what looks like a six and six season with a five game losing streak right in the middle where they had three blowouts and a horrible loss to Illinois. And uh, I just think if you're him and knowing a little him a little bit, can you go out on this way? Like, is this the way you go out on a complete dud of a year where you go six and six? And it's not like they're. They were young a couple of years ago when they had that 10-win season. They had a really disappointing year last year. But if you look at it, that 10-win season is starting to look like an aberration because the year before that, they were horrible. 
then they had the it was Lewark, Brian Lewerke's first year as a starter, and they they were impressive. And then last year was a disappointment. This year has been an even bigger disappointment, or at least it's, that's the way it's looking. Maybe they save it and beat Michigan and win the last three. I mean, it's entirely. I mean, they should thump Rutgers and they should thump Maryland. But I mean, six and six. I just there's been a lot of chatter about people saying, okay, maybe at the end of the year there's this deposition. There's a lot of stuff going on off the field. Maybe he just doesn't want to have to deal with and. It's time to move on. But I don't think, and I could be totally wrong, I don't think he's going to want to end on this way. Yeah, I, you know, I think, I I think that's an think interesting... That's him. Yeah, I, I think for most of these coaches, I, I, and I don't know D'Antonio that well, but I think for most of them, and he certainly seems to have that stubbornness to him, the idea of going out on a down note you know, the reason why I think Bob Stoops was able to move along is because the program was in such great shape. And Urban obviously has his health issues, but I also think it made it a lot easier for him to look at Ohio State and say, man, we got to roll and everything's fine here. So I'm going to go do something else. To step away when the program is in disarray is going to be tough. But also the, the next question is comes down to will he be willing to make some changes to that offense and to that staff? Uh, and again, with nobody necessarily in position to force him to do so at Michigan State because the president and the athletic director, they've got other things going on and they're not necessarily in, in the most powerful positions right now. Right. And, he has, and when you say change, he made changes last year, but they were like moving the chairs around. Yeah. You know, I mean, will he make changes that he's not comfortable making? And that doesn't seem to me like him. It's just like, I don't know. He, he always struck me as a die with his boots on kind of guy, <laughs> right? For lack of a you know better cliche. But um, I'm interested to see what happens with this because I just don't know. Like, do you look at it and say, all right, what's coming back next year related to like, to me, Penn State, as good as they've been this year, and I know they just lost to Minnesota, I feel like the way they've recruited, they're going to keep getting better. Mm-hmm. Ryan Day and Ohio State are going to keep getting better. I don't think Michigan's going to fall apart. Um, you know, so I'm looking at it going, okay, are you really going to be able to overtake those programs? And I don't think when you look at the personnel they have right now, it doesn't feel like the answer is anything close to a yes. But, you know, I, I, it's, it, that's to me when you before you said the Will Muschamp part of it, when we talked about South Carolina, I actually thought you were going about talking about Michigan State just because to me, that's the one that's kind of intriguing. And I don't think anybody really knows what he wants and how he wants to handle it, because you're right. The leadership is such a void right now. It's a hard read from a lot of levels. The interesting part of it, and I was at, um, I covered the Michigan State basketball game last week. That was at the Garden against Kentucky. So there was some Michigan State beat writers there. And I just, you know, what do you guys think? And it was a little bit of a split room. But one of the things that was interesting, because when you start playing out what happens if, you know, what if D'Antonio steps aside but also is able to influence who takes over? Pat Narduzzi would seem to be, the obvious right it's one of it's one of his guys he's done a pretty good job at Pitt you know Pitt wins some games it's not supposed to win and loses some games it's not supposed to win but Pitt's in a in a difficult spot to to win at a high level these days Uh, I think all the northern schools in the ACC are at a disadvantage right now because you have to butt heads against those southern schools that are in better recruiting areas so I think Narduzzi's done a pretty good job 
But it, it just it becomes interesting when you start playing out the game of okay, if D'Antonio steps aside and Narduzzi goes to Michigan State, that means Pitt's open. Well, who's a coach that always that that has Pitt on a short list? Joe Moorhead, exactly. Yes. And then all of a sudden that clears up maybe an issue at Mississippi State because you know I, I think there may be some buyer's remorse there. Um, maybe Moorhead would be a better fit uh, in the eastern part of the country. And now all of a sudden Mississippi State gets to reset. Who knows? Maybe that's where Will Muschamp lands up uh, and ends up. I doubt that. I'm just kidding there. But uh, everybody in SEC seems to love Will Muschamp. But it just that the idea of Michigan State opening up and you have all these like sort of dominoes that fall after it is intriguing to me. Yeah, uh, look, I mean, who knows? Maybe this is the place where um, Luke Fickle ends up, you know, going. That's the other. Cincinnati. Yeah, that's the other you one know. that comes up a lot because they uh, D'Antonio and him, I guess, work together on at Ohio State. Yeah, and look, I don't. I think I'm sure Ohio State is his dream job, unless Ryan Day decides. Oh, wait, I want to go really back to the NFL, and now I have an opportunity. I don't think Ryan Day's leaving anytime soon. So if you're if you're Luke Fickle, you know maybe if you're hoping either James Franklin would move on and Penn State opens up, or you're hoping at some point Michigan State opens up because I don't see him going to Michigan. He just seems like such a Big Ten guy. So, Fickle, let, let, let's stay on that track then because USC possibly opens. James Franklin seems to be the coach that comes up most as the possible candidate there. I feel like we've talked a lot about that. You've talked a lot about that in other platforms. So I'm not going to dive too deep into that. But you're right, Penn State possibly opening up. Now Luke Fickle, maybe a Matt Rule. But you also mentioned the NFL and Ryan Day. I, I'm wondering where you think – if anywhere, there could be some NFL activity. I know Lincoln Riley's name is going to come up. Matt Rule, I am convinced, won't go to another college job, will end up in the NFL at some point because he just keeps getting NFL interest. So at some point he will end up in the NFL. I don't know if it's this year. What are your thoughts on NFL possibilities for college coaches and that opening up some jobs? My gut is that of all those names you mentioned, Matt Rule is the most likely one to end up in the NFL in the not-too-distant future. I'm not saying for sure it'll be this year, maybe it'll be next year, but I think if you look at some of these guys, Lincoln Riley has a – and I'm not saying Matt Rule doesn't have a great situation because he certainly does. I, I, from everything I've heard, his family loves living there. He's now getting paid a fortune there, and I think that they respect what he's done. Um, just, I think Lincoln Riley's never been in the NFL. Matt rule has, it wasn't for that long, but he was on the giant staff. Right. And and as you said, he's interviewed before, you know, multiple times. So I could see that happening with him. Um, you know, the, the ones who are, who are interesting to me in this cycle and as it, as it relates to USC as well, you mentioned James Franklin. Uh, I think Matt Campbell, he has a decent-sized buyout, but just having done his game last week against Oklahoma, I think you and I are both in agreement here. I mean, he's about as impressive as a coach under 50 as there is, and he's worked wonders at Iowa State. And I could, after being around him a little more this weekend, I could see Matt Campbell anywhere. Like, a lot of guys we've talked about on this podcast, I would say kind of are regionalized to some degree. Like, I couldn't see, even if Gus was winning big, Gus Malzahn, I couldn't see Gus Malzahn as a head coach at USC. I just mm-hmm. couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't see Gus Malzahn in the Big Ten either. Uh, with guy, 
And some of these guys, the same thing. I see them in the Northeast. I couldn't see them at certain, you know, you know, there are certain guys like this. I think Matt Campbell's one of those guys who I could see pretty much anywhere. Matt Rule fits in that category, but I just think, to me, Matt Rule's next step, if it's anywhere, is to the NFL. Yeah, I, I, I know James Franklin's name comes up a lot for USC, and it would be a, 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 a home run hire for USC. It's a guy with a great track record. He's just a guy who's, had, who's dealt with high academic standards at Vanderbilt and even at Penn State to a certain degree. I, I think in many ways it would be a slam dunk. But put that aside, if James decides, you know what, I got it going on here at Penn State, and maybe they, I, I suspect that he could get another big raise, frankly, it, it, real soon as well. I, I think Matt Campbell, as you said, would fit anywhere. I think he would be great at USC. I wouldn't be surprised if USC decides, you know what, we're not necessarily even going to go for James. I, 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 like, I don't, I don't know if they necessarily even need to start at James Franklin. I think the first guy on my list, if I'm USC, would be Matt Campbell. You know, bring in somebody who is a little younger, who you're not necessarily stealing away from someplace else. I understand the buyout's pretty big, but I, I think that you could you have sort of a blank slate there and let him let him be the person who who sort of paints the next picture at USC. But again, when we start about when we start talking about, you know, this move leads to that move leads to this move. Boy, Matt Campbell at Penn State would certainly sound like a pretty good idea, too. It would. I mean, I think that's a, that would be a, a pretty good backup or, or counter if you're Penn State. I mean, to me, just living out here on the West Coast, I could see James Franklin as the head coach of USC. He has a big presence to him. He's recruited really well. I mean, the job he did at Vandy is as good a job as anyone has done pretty much anywhere in terms of just how bad Vandy was, how bad Vandy's been since. You mm-hmm. know, So I, I, I think there's going to be some dominoes are going to fall. I, I, you know, the people, I mean, we talked to a lot of the same people and sources wise about some of this stuff, but a lot of people that I've talked to think 2020 is going to be a huge year for coaching turnover. And this isn't going to be much of a year. Well, let's see what happens if you, what USC does. And then let's see, certainly with some of the, I mean, USC and Florida state are pretty big jobs and Arkansas is not insignificant either. Those could create some dominoes, and then we'll see. And obviously, we talked about Michigan State. That's a pretty good job. So, and I'm not saying D'Antonio is leaving, but at this point, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I think is going to start to start to create some movement. That in years past, when you hire coordinators, that doesn't do it. I think in some of these jobs, you're not going to see coordinators get these big jobs. You're going to be see sitting head coaches get them. I think P.J. Fleck, having signed that contract recently, like the day after Florida State comes open, is a sign that, listen, I understand that every contract can be broken because that's the way these things are written. But I don't think you sign that contract the day after or two days after Florida State opens up to then turn around and take the Florida State job or to then turn around and go coach at USC, which you know is coming open. So maybe I'm wrong here, but to me that was a signal. And again, he's got a pretty young team there. I think you've done a couple of Minnesota games this year. We did their opener, yeah. We did their opener. We're going to do the uh, Floyd of Rosedale Bowl uh, this weekend in uh, oh, yeah. Chile, Iowa City. So, so, so I mean, yeah, he's got a team that's pretty well set up to be good for a couple of years here. So I could see him basically signing that contract, not just as a show, but to, to sort of say, listen, I'm, I'm out this year. 
but you know, come back to me and let's let's talk again next year. Yeah, I could see him also thinking that you know what? Uh, let me see what I can make a run. I'm in the I'm in the division that's not Ohio State or not Michigan. Right, he could not. He, he might be able to knock out a couple of division titles in that division. Yeah, let me see what I can do here. As you said, Tanner Morgan, who was super impressive against Penn State last weekend, their quarterback. He's a sophomore. Rashad Bateman. I mean, I'm guessing he's a three and out kind of receiver, but he's going to be there next year. I mean, he's a stud. Now they're going to lose. The other receiver is good, but Chris Ottman-Bell yeah. is the third receiver. He's good. Uh, I feel like they're always going to have pretty good running backs. The offensive line, they have two massive guys. On, also young on guys who are like they're sophomore, sophomores. Right? Yeah, yeah Richard so, freshman, sophomores. Yeah, and those guys are combined like 800 pounds <laughs> uh, or seven, literally like 750 pounds. I mean, that's some, two massive human beings that are only going to get better. Uh, their secondary is really good, and they should be still really good next year so. You're right. I mean, at least into 2019, they should probably have a top 15 kind of team. So why don't I roll the dice on this, see what I can do? It seems like he and his family really, especially him, he seems like he really likes it there. I mean, if he goes out to – if P.J. Flack were to – and I don't think he would have been, even after this win, I don't think he's that high on, like, USC's radar. If he were to go out to somewhere like that, I think he would – uh, it's, it's a, even if he's, unless he wins a national title, I think some of the stuff that he is brings with him, I think there would be an increased amount of skepticism in a place like LA or in a, you know, a place where they've seen, it's not to say Pete Carroll didn't do some hokey stuff that, you know, people may look at, but I just think there was a different kind of vibe around it. And I'm just not sure how much of the buy-in you'd get in LA. And I don't know how much of the buy-in you get in, in Tallahassee, but the more he wins, the more believers he's going to create, and he's definitely he's definitely won over a lot of skeptics last weekend. Yeah, you. Um, I'm a little more skeptical of how his, and I, I hate to say act because I I believe PJ Fleck is sincere. I, I I do not think that is an act. You might think it's hokey. Style. Somebody you want to say his style? His style. Yeah, yes, yeah. Acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His style. I think his. I'm not sure if his style plays perfectly everywhere. Uh, somebody. I can't remember who to give credit to on this because it might have even been on this podcast. But somebody had mentioned Fleck and Florida State and sort of said, "Listen, if you're Florida State, you have an established brand. You have a program with a history." Are you going to be willing to turn everything over and suddenly become PJ Flex program? That was an interesting point, and it got me thinking. Again, I didn't think he would necessarily be a good fit down there anywhere, or a perfect fit down there. Because listen, if you win and you're good, you can be a good fit anywhere. But I didn't necessarily think that'd be a perfect. But I thought that was a good point. And now I can't remember who made the point of like, if you are a Florida State and so many people boosters and have sort of ownership over that program, could you? be comfortable handing ownership of this program to P.J. Fleck, Florida State to P.J. Fleck. There was a reason why I didn't necessarily think he would be a, a perfect fit down there. But again, I think that he sort of took himself out of play by signing that extension. Let me shift over to assistant coaches because, you know, you mentioned that, you know, probably not going to be assistants in these jobs, though we often talk like that. We we have this game where we play, hey, if you move this person to here and this person to there, who gets that job? And we're always moving these these co- these head coaches around. But inevitably, a bunch of guys who are assistants get these jobs, and it stops the carousel from moving because head coaches these days, you can make a lot of money everywhere. Guys get you know settled into pretty good situations and decide they don't want to leave. We don't get a ton of 
Power Five, especially the Power Five movement in in the coaching ranks anymore. So who are the assistants that should be on people's radar that you think, okay, this is a person, even at a Florida State, uh, probably not a USC, but even at maybe a Florida State and certainly at an Arkansas where they may decide, you know what, I think we're going to go with that person. You know, I would put Tony Elliott high on that list. He's the co-offensive coordinator at Clemson. People have talked about him for, you know, a couple of years now. I would think, and, you know, one of the jobs we didn't mention that I think is worth keeping an eye on is South Florida. Oh, sure. They have they have a rough final three games. They have Cincinnati, Memphis, and at UCF. They lose all three of those games. Charlie Strong is going to go four and eight. Now, I don't know how viable they are to, to making a change at this point on him. But Tony Elliott's a guy who's recruited down there a lot. I could see him. That's a, that would be a good first head coaching job. Um, I could see I could see him in the mix. I think you start with those Clemson guys. Jeff Scott is a guy a lot of people. The other co-offense coordinator is a, lot, is a guy a lot of other people in the business really respect. Obviously, Brent Venables is is as good a defensive coordinator as there is now. But he's you know been very choosy and who knows maybe he's somebody Arkansas looks at. I mean I I could see that because he's. Mm-hmm. You know he's recruited in that area really well, and and he's got an he's got an edge and he's got a presence to him that I think could could at least get people interested, and that's a different route going defense. Uh, after that, I don't feel like there is going to be this big run on guys. Like to me, the runaway winner of the Broyles Award, not the Joe Burrow is going to run away with the Heisman, and Joe Brady is going to run away with the, with the Frank Broyles Award. He's the passing game coordinator. He was barely on anybody's radar at this time last year when he was an anonymous 30? staff rep. 30, 31? He, yeah, just turned 30. Yeah. Was an anonymous staff for, for the Saints. You know, Ed Ogeron found them. They believed in him in a big way. And But at, at this age, um, I don't think Joe Brady is – he's a terrific coach. But I think it's probably – he's probably a year or two away from being in a position where you'd say, okay, I could see somebody – bringing him in to be a head coach. Yeah, you know, know, there's going to be a bunch of, like, um, Mountain West jobs open. Um, New Mexico, UNLV, I'm forgetting, Colorado State probably. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I mean, but again, like, he's only 30. At this point, like, he can Why be, would he go to one of those places? I mean, yeah. I, there was – I was there in early April – and so I spent three days in at LSU, and one of the days I said, you know, I talked to them. I was like, "Hey, I'd really like to do a story on Joe Brady because obviously Ogeron had been telling me a lot for months about how great he thought he was." And so after their offensive staff met, I went into his office and we sat down and talked. And I think that was the first interview he said he'd ever done. <laughs> and I started thinking about it more. Because you have to remember, like he had, he had never been a position coach with the Saints. He wasn't a position right. coach. He was just an analyst. He was a GA at yeah. Penn State. Now he was a position coach briefly at at uh, at William and Mary, his alma mater. But then he was a he was a, a backup college player. So it wasn't like, and even you know he went to, to high school in South Florida. I'm not sure you know the Miami Herald is talking to a you know an average receiver on a team. So, and I'm not saying just because you haven't done interviews doesn't mean you can't be a head coach right away. I just think that in terms of it's a massive stuff, step. Yeah. It's a massive stuff, step. Yeah. All the stuff that goes with being ready to be, to run a program and he's really, really smart. And obviously he's great with football. All the other stuff I think takes a little bit more time to get into. I mean, this isn't probably the right, the perfect parallel, but 
when Johnny Manziel won the Heisman at Texas A&M, I remember talking to one of the older guys on the A&M staff about Cliff Kingsbury. And he said, I love Cliff. He's a whiz when it comes to game plan. But a lot of the stuff that you need to do as a head coach, someone's dealing with that or other people deal with all that other stuff. Even if you're a coordinator, sometimes the coordinators get to do some of that stuff. He was like, someone's just let, just, just let Cliff you know, handle the offense and all the other stuff and th- those other details which go into running a program you know, some coordinators are more involved than others. And so at this point, I mean, I would say, you know, file Joe Brady's name away for a couple of years from now. I don't doubt that somebody's going to throw a ton of money at him to be a coordinator, but I'm pretty sure LSU is going to throw a ton of money at him too. So yeah, that was, after. that's the other point is that LSU is currently paying Dave Aranda two million over 2 million to be its defensive. 2. Court. 5, yeah. yeah. So 2. I'm sure, 5. I'm sure it could find a million for Joe Brady. Or eight hundred thousand. Even if he, if they they could double his salary and get him up to they I think nine hundred, triple his salary, and also keep in mind their head coach, who's now probably one of the ten best head coaches in college football after what you've seen him do, he's making half of what a lot of other guys on that list are making. Now mm-hmm. he's probably going to make a lot more after this year, but that's still you know if you combine what they're making, it's not a lot, and and so. I'm sure they're going to sort the economics out now that, you know, everything's flowing into the program. But, uh, you know, after that, I I look at a couple of these guys and the Rutgers job has been open. And Jeff Halfley was as a coordinator at, at Ohio State. He is a rising star, I think, on the other side, also a New Jersey guy, Mike Elko from uh, Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. Like I could have seen those guys in a different scenario, maybe being really high up on Rutgers radar. But I think a lot of these guys are going to look at it and say, okay, let me sit tight for another year. I'm not going to jump at, um, you know, old dominion, or I'm not going to jump at some of these, some of these other jobs, New Mexico, UTSA is the other one that might come open. Yeah. Maybe if the money works out, maybe they do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, you know, I could see some of these guys in the Pac-12 actually having a more of a chance because the Mountain West jobs, those are, you know, like especially if Colorado State opens up, you know, does Marcus Arroyo leave Oregon to try to get one of these jobs? I mean, that's that's entirely possible. You know, does he try to get UNLV? Does he, you know, I don't know if he would want New Mexico. I don't know who would want New Mexico. Yeah, New Mexico is going to be a tough job to fill. It's a program that has had some success in the past, but it's in a very bad place right now. It's had awful, just awful things happen uh, there that have nothing to do with off the field. We just had a player, a death there a couple of, I think, last week, and Bob Davies had health issues. And so there's been a lot of problems at New Mexico, but so that's going to come up in UNLV. I think, you know, what you're noticing now is some of these like lower, not perfectly ideal situations in the group of five, even at a place like the Mountain West. I, I, they just have to be a little more creative. You're right. Like the, the, the good assistant coaches, the, the coordinators at Power Five schools, they're getting paid so well and they see opportunities to possibly become Power Five coaches because I think a lot of Power Five schools look at their jobs and say, I'd rather have a Power Five coordinator who's been at a big program than a group of five coach. Like because who hasn't necessarily had the experience at the Power Five level. In other words, I would rather have Ohio State's co-defensive coordinator than a MAC head coach who hasn't been around what a, what an Ohio State type program is like. 
Uh, I want somebody with that type of experience who's seen what Ohio State or Clemson can do and come here and recreate that. So it's becoming, I I think it's harder for these group of five schools to, to fill their jobs because of that. Yeah, and I think, look, there's an example where sometimes some of those coordinators are making so much money. We mentioned Dave Aranda, $2.5 million. I think sometimes it becomes, like, I mentioned Old Dominion before. Like, I could see them hiring Charles Huff, who's like an assistant head coach. Mm-hmm. He's the running back coach at uh, Alabama now. He was on uh, James Franklin's staff at Penn State. He's got ties in Virginia. Like, that's a guy where I'd say, oh, I could see them hiring him if and when ODU opens up because you're taking a guy who's got now Nick Saban ties. He's got Joe Moorhead and James Franklin ties. And also he's not making, you know, $1.75 million. So it economically doesn't make sense, you know? So Mm -hmm. like some of those situations where it's like, okay, like, I don't know when it happened, probably 10 years ago when some of these, maybe it was 15 years ago, when some of these coordinator jobs on power fives were became so fruitful financially that it really was prohibitive when it came to some of these other, certainly Mac jobs and Sunbelt jobs where the guys who are going to take them, they may not be the coordinators at the schools that they may be power five coordinators, but they're on the lower end, you know? And so that's the part where you look at and go, okay, if you're one of these guys, whether it's Dave Aranda or, or Brent Venables, or or uh, you know Elko, you're going to be really selective on what you're going to get yourself into, especially where you know you can be kind of choosy. And look, they see some examples of a Jeremy Pruitt, of a Will Muschamp, of guys who have gotten big, big uh, head coaching jobs that kind of waited on. Kirby Smart's prime example of that. Bruce, we have done this for a long time. I appreciate you taking all this time, but we covered a ton of ground. And <laughs> that means get out. I could tell. No, no, no. Because I, I, I realized, me, I actually have some other work to do today. I better get going. Wait a second. This has been a lot of fun, though. And I think we have now given our listeners uh, here at the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, and you can hear Bruce with uh, Stu Mandel on the Audible, too, which is a great podcast to listen to every week. I think you guys are doing it twice a week now. But I really wanted to give our listeners here a really good rundown of what the coaching carousel looks like. Uh, I don't think we dove into every single nook and cranny, but we got a lot of places. We went a lot of places and we covered a lot of ground, and I really appreciate you doing it for me. Always a pleasure, Ralph. Hopefully I'll see you on the road soon. Absolutely. Bruce, Bruce Feldman from Fox and The Athletic here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. And now three and out, first down. Last weekend was a great one in college football, but this one has a chance to be pretty amazing, too. There are five games matching ranked teams, plus Michigan-Michigan State, Texas at Iowa State, Wake Forest versus Clemson, pretty good game, possibly, UCLA at Utah. A little preview of the weekend. I keep thinking that Auburn is going to win one of these big SEC games, and this one against Georgia seems more likely than the Alabama game. Not sure how much Auburn will score on Georgia's defense, but the Bulldogs' offense might not be explosive enough to pull away from a pretty good Auburn defense. The Auburn D-line versus the Georgia offensive line will be a fun matchup. I'm leaning towards Auburn in this game. Second down. I think the unbeaten run for Baylor ends 
against Oklahoma this weekend. The Bears have been a great story. They are in a similar spot as Minnesota was last week. The Gophers knocked off Penn State, but I think Oklahoma will put an end to Baylor's winning streak. But there's a really good chance that this will just be the first of two matchups between Oklahoma and Baylor. The Bears are still in great shape to be the second seed in the Big 12 playing in the conference championship game. Speaking of Minnesota, the Gophers seem too balanced for an Iowa team that is very good on defense and pretty bad on offense. But I can see Minnesota having a hard time replicating the intensity two weeks in a row. Winning that game against Penn State could turn out to be easier in some ways than winning at Kinnick Stadium. I might have said this last week, but I suspect Notre Dame is going to lose another game this year, even though the Irish will be favored each week the rest of the way. Maybe Navy gets them this week in a game that could really boost the American Athletic Conference. Lastly, Penn State should bounce back against an Indiana team that is ranked for the first time in 25 years, but has gotten to 7-2 and two without beating a team with a winning record. I would beware a little bit of a hangover from last week by the Nittany Lions. Third down. Off the radar is one very, very, very bad football game. UMass sitting at 1-9, making a good case for being the worst team in FBS, faces Northwestern. The Wildcats are startlingly bad, coming off a West Division title, sitting at 1-8. The margin between winning and losing is always thin at Northwestern. It's the reason why I think so highly of the job Pat Fitzgerald does as a coach there. He has been a consistent winner at a place where it is really hard to win consistently. But Northwestern has fallen off a cliff this year with maybe the worst offense in Power 5, and that includes Rutgers. If there is one team the Wildcats should manage to muster a few touchdowns against, it's UMass, which lost 48-21 to to Rutgers to open the season. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcasts, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC.